Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Welcome to the podcast, Oshan. I'm excited to chat with you today. I feel like you're the other person on the internet which has created their own I guess, pseudo PhD program, don't want to go to academia, (laughs) but still want to go really deep on certain topics and exploring like what the heck is happening with work. Um, Mm -hmm. I, it's been cool to see somebody else exploring these topics and know, okay, I'm not the only one thinking about these. Um, and a lot of your writing, I'm just super grateful for you've thrown me in a lot of new directions and opened my mind and imagination and new possibilities. So welcome to the podcast and just thank you for all the work you're doing. Thanks so much, Paul. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And likewise, you've done the same for me. So I'm happy to have this opportunity. I want to dive right into it. Um, I love how you frame your central curiosity, which is this quote, we're all going to die. But in the meantime, the world is far more mysterious, wonderful and stimulating than human consciousness plagued by economic precarity can experience. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that um, you're exploring these topics with kind of hope and wonder, which I think is missing. It's so much debate about inequality, work, all these things. When did the traces of this first start for you, though? Yeah. Uh, so let's. Uh, where do we go back to? I guess it started out growing up, like in in the household. My father was a professor, is a professor of um, Asian religions at Vassar. So I grew and he was, you know, kind of big on the whole hippie world and, and so on. So I grew up with a, you know, talk about consciousness and God and these kinds of things were really mundane. Um, so that certainly played a role. But then all the way through when I went to college, I, I studied economics and philosophy. But underneath that, I always consciousness was always kind of the thing that I was most interested in. Um, I was reading guys like Ken Wilber who wrote The Spectrum of Consciousness, which was a really interesting kind of first work that tried to integrate Eastern and Western approaches um, to that kind of thing. 
Um, but yeah, in college, I, I think I studied economics almost as a, a rebellion against all that because it felt very abstracted and, you know, aloft and all these kinds of things. And I wanted something rooted in how I thought the world worked and, you know, this kind of stuff. So there was always that kind of weird juxtaposition of on one hand, you know, economics on the other hand, consciousness and meditation and these things. And the, the department that I studied at was pretty mainstream, pretty orthodox, a lot of econometric modeling, a lot of statistics, and it just thoroughly disenchanted me with economics. I thought, all right, this is not what I thought it was. It's not interesting. It's not getting at the questions that felt alive and important to me. So after I graduated, I went the other direction, went out to Asia for about a year um, just to do the meditation thing, to do a lot of reading. Um, but out there, I, I wound up reading kind of the the economists and the cultural theorists that I hadn't found in undergrad, which kind of showed me that it's possible to look at these two things um, together, to look at economic systems and also to look at um, both kind of the construction of conscious experience. So what plays into, you know, my subjective experience of what it feels like to be me in this moment, right? That's not just a kind of a personal thing. There's kind of structural causality that's laced through that. And so it turns out there are a lot of people who've been looking at that question from different angles. Um, so I guess that all just kind of started when I, when I got back from Asia, um, that question felt very important to me, especially because, you know, I'd been at little meditation camps and this and that largely with a lot of other like white Westerners who had enough privilege to do these kinds of things. Right. Um, but we weren't talking about, you know, what about, what about people who don't have, you know, the capacity to live at home, save up for six months and then fly out to Asia. This is obviously a very, um, particular privilege to be able to do this. Um, or even just to talk about, you know, why aren't we structuring societies in ways that we can explore these questions without having to remove ourselves from them, right? What if, what if society actually helped us in this process? Um, so, so that just felt like a natural kind of area of interest to me. And I found that it wasn't super common, which is a little more encouraging because it was, it was more interesting to kind of try to flesh out. And that's, that's kind of where I've been since. Like you said, I do a lot of writing on it. Uh, I have a podcast where I speak with people about it. And it's, um, I think it's a really important niche. And for, for whatever reason, it's held my interest. And, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Did you at any time during university or exploring Asia, were you thinking, okay, I'm going to go get a job uh, working <laughs> in like finance, economics? Was that ever in your mind were you thinking academia at any point because that's was your father's path yeah yeah it was kind of uh it was kind of an accident the way things turned out it was the fall of senior year which is kind of when traditionally a lot of people go through the interview process and towards january you might be signing a contract um and so i was i was doing the process i was going through you know all the entry level economics positions market analysts kind of stuff um and it just it felt so dead um, I, I looked at, you know, what the job actually entailed and usually it was cold calling or some kind of spreadsheet analysis. Um, so that, that didn't grab me. So I, I didn't find anything and it just kind of, the months kept rolling by and then eventually it got to the point, uh, graduation rolls around. I had no idea what I was doing. My roommates had, you know, jobs lined up. And I remember there was a moment I was kind of sitting on the porch of our, of our house after graduation. So we had our robes on, I had like a bottle of cheap Andre champagne. And it was the first time in my life that since I just hadn't gotten a job. It was the first time in my life that there was no structure ahead of me to kind of organize and make sense of, of time. You know, it was just kind of, here's the rest of your life in front of you. What do you want to do with it? Um, which I'm really thankful for. It was, it was stressful and there was same anxiety in it, but it was really, um, it was a unique experience. I mean, I'd never had that before, right? Every 
before that, maybe I had summer vacation or things like that, but there was always a structure of time ahead to make sense of what I'm doing. Um, so that led to, you know, going home thinking and then going off to Asia, but yeah, I thought about it and I'm kind of happy that it didn't work out, that I didn't find a job that was good enough that I thought, all right, you know, I'll go that direction. Um, and I can, going into academia, I, I've been flirting with the idea for, I guess, a couple of years now. I mean, I graduated in 2015. Um, I've been flirting with the idea, but I've always wanted to go a different way first to see if I can kind of, because I'd much rather have a kind of self-directed curriculum. You know, I, I, I'd much rather do that, but it's, you know, there's trade-offs here and there. So it's, the idea is on the, on the plane, but for now, no thanks. Yeah. It's something I weighed for several years too. I think many people in academia urged me strongly against it and Mm -hmm. I've kind of listened to them. And then I think just online, the writing uh, world and just the ability to engage both with professors and with people in non-academia, it's, I think it's been a good fit for me too, because I can pivot and write about something silly and then write about something deep uh, at the same time and not feel this pressure to kind of fit into the system. And I did 10 years in the system and always had a track, always knew what my metrics were. And I've kind of enjoyed the, uh, the floating nature of exploring these, uh, these ideas without constraints. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The flip side is you have to make it work, right? It's fun, but then you gotta, you gotta pay rent somehow. Yeah. So how, how have you thought about that? How do you yeah. think about, um, I mean, this is a, we can explore just this phrase, but you don't even know how to say it, making a living, right? That to me is such a crazy phrase, right? Why we are living already. The idea that we need, one needs to make a living is, I mean, this just starts to open up the can of worms of, uh, the weight of our current, uh, consciousness and the words we have to describe it. But how do you think about that? Like, do you have a better way to phrase that or, I say hack a living um, because it kind (laughs) of helps break the frame. But yeah. Yeah. No, it's tough. I I definitely don't have a a good answer. The the way that I kind of have been thinking about it recently is on one hand, I think it's pretty common to look at the way things are today and to say, you know, either uh, things don't need to be this way or maybe you'll point towards the injustice route and talk about how much money, you know, Jeff Bezos has and say, you know, why do I need to you know, work 50 hours a week to barely scrape by. But on the other hand, I think it's interesting to take like a really wide historical lens and to, to understand like, look, humans have always had to do something. You've always had to expend a certain amount of, of energy, usually in, in really horrible conditions, um, just to keep yourself alive, like this, right. this maintenance process. And so if you, if you ask yourself rather, how has that process evolved over like the past 2000 years? Um, not only do I think that's really interesting and it, it kind of tempers a little bit, I think our, our um, tendency to, to get really worked up and angry about the way things are, because on one hand, yes, you know, there's, there's massive inequality. There's, there's all kinds of um, economic things we should talk about. And I, I love that. I do a lot of writing on that. But on the other hand, I think it's important to understand, like, you, you don't just like get born and get to have everything you need. Like you have to figure out a way to, to make sense of, of, you know, how, how to stay alive in the world. Um, and that's also what I think makes kind of this early 21st century economic situation we're in so interesting is our capacities and what we have the resources and the technology to do, I think opens up some avenues that have just never been possible historically. Um, so it's, I think it's fun to put it in that kind of historical lens. 
Yeah. So I think diving into the history really opened things up for me as well. Just reading people like Weber and um, other people and how they thought about work. It's uh, most people don't realize that work was not seen as like an instrumental, like good or end uh, or an aim of life until probably the last 500 years. And then before that, it was kind of, um, and you still see traces of this today, but well, you got to work, but it's, it's what you got to do to kind of uh, get your food and cover your basic um, cost of living. Um, But yeah, it's, I think I am overwhelmed by the possibility too. Um, So maybe talk to me about that. Um, What, what has changed? Like to me, I see more people than ever able to make way more than they could ever possibly need. Um, but they're kind of trapped and not able to see that. Uh, yeah. What are some of your hypotheses for why that's true? Yeah, I, I think one of the really interesting points of, of, of that process has been just the question of, of what do we value and how does what we value influence economic outcomes influence the the kind of outcomes of what everyday looks everyday life looks like for ordinary people um, so for example the u.s is a really interesting case study um, in the u.s from about 1830 until 1930 um, industrial capitalism had really got rolling you also had really powerful labor unions and you had this this kind of shared cultural sentiment that the highest dividend of economic progress was going to be what they called higher progress, but it wasn't just an abstraction. The way they understood that was as a shortening the working week for all. And so from 1830 until 1930, if you look at average hours worked, it declined, started out at about 75 and it went all the way down to, I think hit 37 amidst the the great depression. And then it it stopped and this had a lot to do. It just flat. Yeah, exactly. From 1930 until like 1980. Um, and that had a lot to do with coming out of, of the depression, coming out of the war. You know, there was a big push for consumption. There was a big push for full employment. But we just kind of lost this idea that we valued leisure time. Um, and that kind of idea, that cultural shift led to not only uh, stagnating working time, but in the 80s actually started increasing once again, which historically wildly unprecedented. Like if you went back to the aristocracy 2000 years ago and said, hey, um, rich people because it's it's mostly white men that have led the increase in in working time it's like investment bankers and lawyers because now it's almost a status symbol to work 70 hours a week um entirely unprecedented and that's not out of any economic necessity it's out of what we've deemed important it's out of a lot of social dynamics um and so there's there's people trying to like open this question back up of what do we value why do we value it but it, it's very difficult because it, it requires working against the economic framework that has really dominated the past 50 years in which leisure time is, is kind of drawing against growth. It's drawing against economic activity. Um, and I think there's a lot of problems inherent in, in that formulation, but I think it's really interesting to look at, you know, how we value um, or how, when, when we value things, when that changes the way that you see on top of that kind of the economic system change. Yeah. I personally ran into some of these deep assumptions when I started working self-employed uh, my salary basically went to like 20% of what I was making, but I had a lot more time and it made a lot of people around me uncomfortable. People were like, why wouldn't you want to earn more money? Like you have these <laughs> fancy degrees, like that's the goal. 
And you can kind of start to unpack, okay, these assumptions are really deep and people have had them their whole lives for multiple generations now. Uh, nobody knows where they come from. And I, I'm the, I'm the annoying one that's like, well, where'd that come from? Let's explore that. Let's go back. Yeah. Um, but I also think there's, and you've written deeply about this, the leisure, our conception for what leisure is has been morphed almost by our economic reality. And we don't have cultural traditions, especially in the U.S. I think Europe still has some. That's why you're seeing some of the four-day workweek experiments, the 30-day workweek experiments. But in the U.S., we don't really have that aristocracy tradition. Um, and, I mean, Andrew Taggart's written a lot about this. Like, leisure, historically, was contemplation of the mystery and wonder of the universe, Right. Yeah. Or active engagement with, I guess you could say, things that bring you alive. Um, whereas now we think of leisure as Netflix or a, a vacation, which I think a vacation for people has really become a way to rest for more work. Um, and I see all these patterns in the first 10 years of my career. And I'm kind of just sad that I didn't have a broader imagination for possibility. How, yeah. yeah. How, how have your explorations of, uh, leisure, like what was your conception of leisure growing up? And I know you've talked to people like Ben Honeycutt and others, like how has that shifted for you? Yeah, I, I think you're right that culturally we osmosis idea that leisure, and this is Peeper's line, is, um, just a break in the utilitarian chain of things that, you know, working, working, I'm going to crash on the couch back. And that if you have that break where you're not working, like that's your leisure time. And Peeper kind of turns this on his head and he says, no, leisure is an entirely different ontology. Like it's a different way of experiencing the world. It's a different way of being. Um, and that notion that, that there's a different way of being is so foreign, I think. And it is so difficult to like even begin to approach what that means. Um, like for me, what, what, the first thing that broke, not the first thing, but what really introduced me to like the experiential reality that like leisure is something else. Um, it, it took a psychedelics. I mean, it was my first time on mushrooms. It was like, oh, wow. It's like, it, this can feel different. Just being here in this moment can feel different. And then in meditation practice, it was kind of a much more patient and diligent kind of exploration of that. Um, but it's, it, it's really fascinating. I had no idea. And I, and I think there's also a tendency, you know, people, like you said, people will actually feel sad about themselves. They're like, oh, I wish I, you know, had done this or that. And there's this tendency, I think, to privatize these situations to think like, oh, this is my fault. Like, I can't believe I didn't do that. But I think it's it's just as important to look at the way the system is kind of set up around us in order to perpetuate these attitudes and not to kind of take it within ourselves and harbor all these really negative emotions and and so on and kind of flagellate ourselves, but to to ask what is it about the incentives of the systems we live within that create these attitudes, these mentalities, and what kind of room do we have to work with that? And again, that brings us kind of back to, to the 21st century and what I think is a, is a big explosion in, in our possibilities is we have a lot of room, but in order to kind of discover that room, we have to get back into this question of what's important, what do we value, you know, and, and so on. And that's, that's the tough stuff. Yeah, I see much of the debate around these questions stuck at the very um, measurable um, in terms of money, right? This person has more money than that person. This person has this title or this position. And 
if you look at the statistics for the last couple of years, you would have me in borderline poverty and struggling and failing, right? Except I feel like I'm thriving. <laughs> um, so, and of course there's enormous privilege in that I do, I was able to build savings, um, through other kinds of work. Um, but even people I know do look at me as struggling, like, yeah. and it's really hard to convince someone that, okay, you could do more with less, or there are other modes. I think this goes back to what you talked about at the beginning, uh, with economics. Uh, they love the measurable. Everything's become mm. econometrics. And I think one of my favorite economists, Russ Roberts, has actually tried to broaden this conversation and say, I was actually wrong. <laughs> mm. um, I didn't think about dignity or love or flourishing because we can't mm. measure these things. Um, how, do, how do we escape uh, this trap of like how we think about things like politicians today. I don't see any hope on either American political party. They're so, they just have different groups they support, but they're all in the same frame. They talk about jobs and income inequality. Um, and I think time inequality is something you talk about that could transcend that. But what other things have you seen that could possibly transcend that conversation yeah. and debate? Yeah, the, real quick, I want to add to, you mentioned Russ Roberts. I also I think it's interesting to add Tyler Cowen into that mix because oh, for sure. you don't have to go like far left, like super progressive democratic socialists to find someone who finds leisure time incredibly important, right? Cowan in his book, Stubborn Attachments, he has this idea, he kind of modifies growth and he defines it as an accumulation of of wealth plus, which is basically GDP factoring in environmental concerns and leisure time. Um, so I thought I thought it was interesting that even Cowan, wherever you want to place him on the political spectrum, kind of places leisure time at the fore of kind of a you know moving forward how we value things. But I, yeah, I, my focus has really been on time and specifically how free we are to do what we like with our time. Um, I actually think you can ground this in an interesting economic theory. There's Amartya Sen, who's probably one of the greatest living economists still, and he's known for developing what's called the capabilities approach. And he basically said, like, look, we need to move beyond defining poverty as simply um, a deprivation of income. He's like, this is important, but we have to understand more broadly that freedom, like to develop freedom, it requires increasing our capacity to live or to choose between different ways of living that we have reason to value. And one of the biggest constraints that I see on the different kinds of ways we can live on the ways that are available to us is how much time do you have to spend kind of in this economic mode of earning enough resources to not only meet your needs, but to participate at a basic level in society. Like even Adam Smith, if you go back, Smith said that everybody, no matter where they are on the economic ladder, should earn enough to be able to have all of the things that are considered um, basic requirements for dignity in society at the time. Like, and for Smith, that meant everyone should have enough to buy linen shirts. He was like, linen shirts are surely part of a dignified life. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so if you if you look at time today, there's a lot of um, neglect, I think, on, or rather, maybe just start with, there's a lot of focus on uh, looking at the different kinds of goods that people have access to do. So if you work 40, 50 hours a week, you can make the argument that you have access to a certain level of nutrition or housing or healthcare 
that is not that far off from example, Warren Buffett, where if you go back historically, you look at the difference between the bottom 10% and the top 10% in terms of what kind of goods and resources do they have access to. I mean, that chasm was huge. But what we don't look at is how much of your time, of your lifetime, do you have to exchange basically in order to get access to those things? So where, where Buffett earns enough in probably a couple seconds, you know, it might take someone else, you know, a week, a month, a year. So if you look at time as a kind of a leverage point, the, what I think is interesting is to think about how do we decrease the amount of time that people have to exchange in order to meet their life's needs? Because by doing that, you open up time. Um, for people to choose to live differently if they want to. And I think that's important because in the 20th century, the labor movement had a strong emphasis on reducing the working week and really doing it from the top down, um, kind of whether you, you lower the overtime threshold um, or work sharing program, but it was kind of telling people you're going to work less now. But what I think is really interesting is we have a different suite of policies in the 21st century that can focus more on giving people optionality, on giving people kind of a, a wider capacity to choose. You know, maybe they want to work 80 hours a week as a lawyer. Fine. You know, we, we shouldn't tell them that's a bad thing, but we should give people the real option to choose to live differently without sacrificing their basic needs. Or not, we should do that, but we can do that. And I think that that presents a really kind of rich possibility. Um, Andre Gores, too, a French philosopher who I really like, the way he put it, it's like the, the only way that you're going to get through this, you can't just kind of tell people to choose to live differently. You have to give them um, enough space and time so that that space of leisure time begins to meaningfully measure up to the space of economic rationality of labor time. And the more you kind of decrease that ratio in favor of leisure time, the more you're going to see kind of bottom up emergence. You're going to see people choosing to experiment, to you know explore different ways of living. And, and to me, that's a really interesting approach. Yeah. And I've essentially been trying to do that in my own life, really exploring, okay, what is it like when I open up time for non-work? Mm. The reality is I don't BS people. It's really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> it is more uncomfortable yeah. when you're in the States mm -hmm. because you can't escape the reality you're living in and you feel bad for not working more or not earning more money when you're surrounded by people that are defined by that. Uh, but I'm also here to report that it is incredible, like what is possible and uh, just your orientation to the world. Like over the past few years, I felt like I've just kind of like softened into life a little more. And uh, I've been able to open up things like uh, a little more playfulness and a little more comfort with uncertainty, which if I compare that to my previous life, comfort with uncertainty is probably worth a couple million dollars in wages. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny you mentioned playfulness too. That's such a good kind of point to isolate out. Playfulness is so difficult when you're really kind of mired within a kind of economic labor centric um, rationality. Playfulness, the point can't be beyond the activity itself, right? When you're being playful, it, it's intrinsically motivated. You're not doing it in order to achieve, you know, whatever out there. And that kind of way of being is, is directly labored against in, in the kind of work centric, you know, system we've had. Um, and you mentioned Honeycutt, like Honeycutt studied this. There's also a psychologist, Peter Gray, who studied, like, if you look at the decline of play in American society, so the amount of unstructured playtime that children have, um, that started declining in about 1955. And as that goes down linearly, there's a direct, and Gray would argue, causal 
um, increase in psychopathologies. So like narcissism, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, um, a sense of hopelessness, and specifically a sense that you cannot impact the world almost that you're you know you're you lose your capacity to do so and this ties into some really interesting theory like mark fisher and capitalist realism but play and and not only that i mean play is a wonderful source of innovation like the things we discover in that mentality of play when you're just doing it for fun um throughout history i mean that's contributed some of our some of our greatest innovations and so it's a really dangerous thing i think to, to squeeze out play like we have and it's a really wonderful thing to try to cultivate it yeah, and Jonathan Haidt's written about that too, and how that's showing up um, in young people today, yeah. and it's uh, it's pretty striking. I think um, it feels dangerous to play as mm. an adult, right? Mm-hmm. Subversive, um, yeah. It's like you're you're wasting time, or yeah. why get more serious? You're an adult now. Mm-hmm. Um, So I want to read a quote you wrote, which I think gets to the heart of some of these things too. The projection that we'd waste our time with idling activities like Netflix and the beach neglects that most working class humans today are overworked and barely getting by. Current notions of how we spend our leisure time are products of and responses to our life conditions. So I think what you're saying here is that leisure is kind of downstream of economic circumstance Mm -hmm. and our assessment is essentially right, right? If we just release people tomorrow, they will just waste their time. <laughs> yeah. But this is a human capacity we need to develop through play and uh, also just giving each other permission to um, not have to be a worker every day. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. And there's there's so many people to, to highlight who are doing really interesting kind of work on that. Um, one of them who I really like is Zach Stein. And Stein's whole thing is, for, for example, take basic income. He supports a basic income. He supports economic design that helps us move beyond a kind of wage labor centric way of living. However, he also says that fundamentally that is an educational problem that you can't just give people money and let them exist, not let them. But if you just liberate people from quote unquote wage slavery and then have them exist within the same society as we have it structured, you're, you're going to run into some really interesting and maybe problematic outcomes. He says that we need to give people the capacity to, you know, to become self-directed learners, to, to, to be able to educate themselves, to redesign school, which is really nothing more than a funnel into, you know, the labor world as we know it. Um, so I, I like this idea that moving beyond a kind of wage labor centric way of living is fundamentally an educational problem that requires looking at all the neighboring institutions alongside economics, right? Looking at schooling, looking at uh, family life and parenting and all these kinds of things. Um, and it's also even more fundamentally, like in, in the quote you mentioned, one of the things I was trying to point to too is this growing idea that behavior is very much an ecological outcome. It's kind of, it's a relationship between us and our environments. And on one hand, sure, you can say you can try to change yourself and that's going to lead to behavior change, but behavior is just as causally influenced by the environment. Um, so a lot of arguments against kind of increasing leisure time is to look at how people are behaving today when they have it, right? You can say, look, people just drink beer, they, there's crime, there's this or that. And I think those statistics are they're problematic to begin with. But even then, what you're saying is you're assuming that you're not accounting for the change in the environment, that when you change the way that they are forced to live their lives, you're changing the psychological environment that they live from. And that's going to have some pretty profound effects. Um, And then maybe the last person I'd throw in there is 
uh, Rucker Bregman, the, the Dutch historian, he, in 2014, wrote a, a book, Utopia for Realists, where he introduced a lot of these ideas like basic income, like a 15-hour work week, all this stuff. But he just released a book on human nature. And, and one of his points that was really interesting is he was like, the assumptions that you have about human nature um, that you bring into, into designing a system, whether or not they are accurate, if you hold those assumptions, the system will amplify them. And so he said, what you have to do, if, if, for example, if we're going to decide to value playfulness, we have to assume humans are playful, design for it, and you're going to get that outcome over time, whether or not it's a perfect fit. Now, um, I did, so what you don't have to assume there is you don't have to agree that everyone um, would be incapable of, of making the most of leisure time. I don't really agree with that either. However, even if you feel that way, that's not an argument against designing with these, these other values in mind. Yeah, it seems there's a pervasive learned helplessness, which is a byproduct of our current system, right? Mm -hmm. I felt this deeply when I was working in big companies. I was confident I could have impact or change through the, through the working world. I worked in consulting and worked for big companies. I did projects at C-level executives and we do these big projects. We roll them out and you're convinced like this is going to make work better for people and the organization better. What mm. happens half the time or more is that they fail or actually lead to worse outcomes. Mm. And people smartly realize, okay, I'm just going to kind of like mail it in, do, do whatever I need to do to survive. I'm not really going to uh, find a reason to improve things, but this um, expands out to how we think about everything. Right. And mm. It's an assumption that, okay, university education has to triple in price every 20 years mm. or healthcare has to go up. And then the biggest problem is how do we get people more money, right? And this learned helplessness yeah. kind of just accepts the status quo. And I think what you're arguing for is, okay, how do we, how do we get down to the foundational level, change the aims of what we're trying to do, and then still have whatever, like the, some of the great things about capitalism, let things emerge organically through experiments. Um, mm. but see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, why, why are so many people kind of in a state of learned helplessness? Um, yeah. And not and also at the same time, not open to, okay, things could be better. I mean, is that, it's just so deep. It, I don't even know if I have a question. I'm just like, <laughs> it, this is a, such a big challenge and I don't, I'm lost. I don't know yeah. how to convince somebody that's like, ah, it's just the way things are that, okay, there's, it, it could be different. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm also lost and I'm also kind of adrift in that question, but one of the the areas that I found pretty relevant is if you, it kind of requires power analysis. So if you look at power, um, in society, and especially over the past 50 years, you see, um, so you can look at economics and that's a kind of a lot of powers downstream of economic power. Um, you know, it's, it's the familiar story that the labor share of, of profits has been decreasing, that workers have not been seeing, you know, wages rising with productivity. But the idea that, that economic power um, is declining, I think is very deeply interconnected with this kind of sense of learned helplessness. And the way that the way that we think about responding to that, if that ever becomes a relevant question, is often so limited. The, the way I think about that is 
there was there was an experiment um, used largely to justify SSRIs and antidepressants, um, which I forget what it was called, but basically you had a big glass cylinder and you filled it half with water and it was pretty tall and you dropped a rat into the water and the rat would, there's absolutely no way for it to get out. You know, they can't crawl up the, up the glass. So they kick for a while and eventually they give up and drown. And then the researcher would pull it back up after it, after it had given up. And the way that what they were trying to do was develop the SSRIs so that the rat would spend longer and longer kicking in this hopeless situation. And the longer that it would kick, the more they would deem the, the intervention successful. And there's, it's, it's such a crazy, perfect metaphor to me is, is like, what we have deemed success is this very marginal kind of sick and twisted, like cruel optimism of, here's this hopeless environment in which there's very little you can actually do, but we're going to try to make it so you can tread water just a little better, just a little marginal improvement. And that's how we're going to think about progress. Um, And so this again, brings in the whole kind of behaviors, ecological, if you change the environment, I think that's where you get a lot of, a lot of changes. And that's also why, you know, I'm, I'm very interested by um, universal policies, things like basic income, things like universal healthcare, things like co-determination to change kind of corporate governance to give workers actual direct seats at, at, at the tables of power. Um, there's a lot of, of ways that we can intervene in the environments so that people can begin to feel they have a little more agency or back to send. They have a little more capability to actually um, act upon the world. And these are things we see borne out in evidence. I mean, Finland just released, um, well, just a couple months ago, uh, a full report of their two-year basic income trial. And one of the most interesting outcomes from that is they did qualitative interviews with people. So afterwards, they just sat them down and had long talks about what it was like. And one of the most consistent findings was, and I'm quoting them here, that people felt they had a greater capacity to influence their own future. Um, Just, I think there was by giving them the equivalent of, I think it was 800 or 900 um, a month. But there's no way to quantify that. I don't think you can't put a, a metric on how important that is. And especially downstream, if you're able to increase people's capacity and their sense that they have a say in, in the shape of their lives, 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, that just compounds and compounds and compounds. So like you said, it's difficult to quantify that. But I think that's one of the most important things we can look at is how do we help people and change the environments that are that make us feel like we have no capacity, no power um, to enact change or to to choose between different ways of living that we have reason to value. I definitely want to dive deeper into UBI and some of those different things I can break the frame. But I think for me, you mentioned at the beginning, this idea of we sh- of suffering, right? A lot of people pair the idea of work with the idea that you should suffer through one's life. And that has a long history. That's kind of like the, the, uh, you can go back to the Bible and it says work is toil, right? It's kind of this, uh, necessary evil that you have to do in life. And it still exists today. And I think an interesting exploration for me has been diving into, okay, what, what are the work beliefs that people have and where do they come from? Hmm. And this has been really interesting to talk to people, showing them the history of these work beliefs and the fact that they haven't been fixed and some of them have emerged. The Protestants came up with a newer version, uh, slightly crazy at first, now accepted widely as just the norm. Um, and that makes people question, oh, wow, these are kind of just made up uh, beliefs for how we think about work. Did you have work beliefs? growing up about like what work was 
Um, I think for me, I looked around me and saw people kind of compromising. Mm-hmm. And I kind of did intuit the idea that like work should be suffering. Um, yeah. You should have a long commute. You should have to spend long hours. You should have to like work overtime. Um, right. And I have only recently shifted away from that. And I think UBI is one of those things that does help um, reframe it as, okay, this person can have agency and suffer less. Um, So have you had a trajectory of how you've thought about work and the work beliefs? I think I I was pretty lucky in the sense that I grew up in an unorthodox enough kind of household and family that I didn't have a strong sense of that. Um, Certainly, I, I wasn't kind of exposed to any organized religion um, although I was exposed to a lot of, you know, if you want to do this spirituality and religion dichotomy, um, a lot of spirituality, but no, I didn't have a lot of that. Um, so I didn't have some kind of big, uh, reckoning where I look at the way I'd been living. I was like, wow, like what, what the hell is wrong with you now? Granted, I, I feel that way about a lot of other dimensions in my life, but work was never this thing that I was deeply steeped and indoctrinated into kind of like the Protestant ethic about, um, that being said, I didn't have um, a strong understanding of of what else to do. Like it was clear to me, like you need to work, you need to have a job, and all right. these kinds of things. Um, what What's been helpful for me recently is using um, Hannah Arendt's distinction between labor and work, because I've come to I actually really like work. Like I love work. I think it's one of the best things humans can do. But the definition is a little different. Um, the, the way she defines labor. And actually, she's drawing from Marx here is that labor is, is humankind's uh, metabolism with nature, which is to say it's just a cyclical thing you have to do. It's, it's, you know, you acquiesce to the world as it is in order to get what you need in order to survive. And you do it day in, day out, because that's what being a human is. Um, but then work is, is distinct from that cyclical process of doing what you need to survive. Work is something that has uh, definite beginning and end points, that work is something that you create, that you bring into the world that will stay in the world once you're gone. So like you could take a book, for example, right? A book is contributing to what she calls the public realm, um, which is kind of like the the more durable realm of human creation that accrues over time and generations. Um, and so when, you know, when we talk about getting beyond work, and I think, I think you feel the same way, but I won't speak for you is we're not saying like humans shouldn't do anything of what we consider work. Like that, that's right. not the case at all. There's all kinds of work to do. There's really important work to do. And, and work is a really um, nourishing kind of vitalizing thing to do. If it is something that the uh, one way to think about it is the more intrinsically motivated work is a, the more close to actual work it is. And B, I think the more value it actually contributes to your life and to society. So a lot of what I think about economics is how do we transition what work is so that it becomes much more of an intrinsically motivated activity as opposed to its conflation with labor and and labor being the thing that um, kind of gets all the merit of work and therefore justifies itself. Yeah, I love that. I think I read uh, Gore's as well, and he talks about we our conception of work has been narrowed to what can be paid for and then what can be paid for um and you have a certain set of professional qualifications or technical skills um so we've really narrowed um what we call work um and some people some activists push back on that and say okay we should consider um raising a child as work too Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a mistake because that the, 
it's just expanding the scope of what can be paid for and looking at that is something worth doing. And I'm more interested in coming at it from the other dimension and like, yeah, I think words, even words like labor and work, it's hard to differentiate those. Everyone thinks of labor movements and what can be paid for. Um, but it's, it's, it's really hard to talk about these things because I feel the same way. Like some of the things I do, I love like writing. Um, and there's not much economic incentive. Uh, I don't think a lot of people get into writing for the economic uh, okay. motivations, but, um, people will say to me like, Oh, you quit your job to like work less, but you seem to be like working a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have an entry point to that conversation. Yeah. I, like I don't have the terms and I, I've been exploring, okay, what are the modern work beliefs? How do we reclaim some of the words or concepts? And I don't even know where to start. It's, it's tough, man. And I like in my life, for example, once I got back from Asia, the way I was paying my bills is I was working at a fine dining restaurant. And so during the day, like, you know, however many hours I spent working, that was my labor. And then I'd get home and I'd, I'd write essays. I'd work on the podcast and like that was my work to me. But when I would speak with people and, you know, I'm meeting someone and you do the introduction thing, I always <laughs> felt like, you know, I have to lead with the labor because that's where I'm getting money. Therefore it's elevated to the status, even though the, the gravity of my life, like my interests, my fascinations had, I couldn't care less about the restaurant industry. Like people would always say when I tell them, they're like, Oh, do you want to own your own restaurant? Like, no, not at all. I just want to like have enough time to write and pay my bills. What's your career um, path? Yeah, exactly. Like, well, I don't know. <laughs> and like you said, you know, that uncertainty is difficult, um, especially when the things that fascinate you in life are things that you cannot um, earn money from, which, which is also a very dangerous proposition. Like a lot of people will say, if you start earning money from your writing, for example, it could kind of subvert the whole thing. It's a very difficult incentive game. But when you aren't able to pay for your life from the thing that gives you life, and not only that, but the thing that you then do in order to make money claims so much of your time it's this very difficult situation that i think is very draining and so again if we can shift that balance a bit not so that people you know only have to work two three hours a week but even if if there was no necessity to work beyond 25 30 hours a week that opens up 10 hours in order to put more of your your time yourself your being your attention into things that even though they're not generating a return on the market like you say they're things that you value um that would be nice yeah. And, and this is almost the hidden, uh, possibility that has been an unleashed for a lot of low wage folks or mm -hmm. people like you with the gig economy. Yeah. Um, and I see like you, you basically see full-time employees who are either politicians or highway earners who are outraged at Uber and they want to turn them into employees. Mm -hmm. Um, and I see, I mean, we should definitely take short-term action. Uh, some of the conditions are awful, but we should also use this as an inflection point to say, okay, what is possible? Because somebody could, like you could easily do Uber for 20 hours a week and kind of fund your academic uh, exploration on the side. Right. That's pretty amazing. That seems worth doing. You're contributing to the society and community. Um, and you're able to kind of fund, um, things you want to be doing, um, right. that that's exciting for me. And I don't see that conversation happening. Yeah. 
I mean, and it's tough too, because the thing with Uber, like one of the lines of argument against is that like their main innovation has been misclassified or not classifying their employees as employees, which means they don't have to pay for the car deprecation costs. They don't pay for gas. They don't pay for a lot of the benefits that comes with traditional employment. And then the move they make then is therefore we should classify them as employees. But it's also interesting to think about, okay, but what if, <laughs> what if we pass universal health care? What if we pass a, a basic income, a negative income tax that says you're going to get at least you know, 13K and it scales up? Um, what if we pass a, a cap and trade or a carbon tax that has a dividend back out? Like what, what if we design economics so that you aren't dependent upon employment in order to be okay? And like, how far can we take that? Because it's also very important not to get lost in the kind of utopian fantasy of, you know, fully automated luxury communism right now. Like, I'm not saying it's not possible one day, but how far we can take that needs really rigorous economic analysis. But you're right, we don't see a lot of people talking about okay, if there's a problem in the labor structure of, of Uber, if people are being um, kind of exploited, we don't, the, the only option available isn't necessarily classifying them as employees, although that is kind of within the nearest realm of political feasibility. It's more difficult to imagine passing this suite, you know, healthcare-based income, social dividends. That's, that's much more difficult to imagine. But at the same time, like especially these past few months, you've seen the Overton window just kind of blown open and you've seen a lot of things put on the table. So I think it does make a lot of difference to try to bring this into the conversation is what other conditions would make this kind of gig work more feasible for people? And then what kind of different ways of living might that open up? And should we explore those possibilities? Yeah. And it's really hard for me to avoid this obvious possibility. My wife is Taiwanese. Mm -hmm. So when she leaves her job, she still has universal health care. Hmm. And there's a cultural norm that, okay, if you live with your family, that's not frowned upon, right? Some of these things in the U.S. are built in culturally, right? It, it is shameful to have to rely on other people, yeah. whereas in other parts of the world, that may not be true. Um, so I see, like, nobody worries about healthcare in uh, Taiwan when they're young. Right. Right? right. It's definitely a concern for anyone that's old, but um, they're not making any sort of labor decision because of keeping uh, some health insurance program. Yeah. Um, that's assumed that's there for everyone. And it's mm -hmm. pretty cool to see kind of the lack of that worry. And then I go to the U.S. and I talk to friends who are making $200,000 a year and they say, well, I can't leave my job. What would <laughs> how would I get health care? Yeah. And I mean, um, you can see that in like in the literature too. You can see that as you decrease um, dependency upon employers for healthcare, they've done, they've done things in Newark, New Jersey, it gives interesting stats, but even more broadly, you see entrepreneurship rates go up. It's like one of the things that keep people from this very American ideal of starting your own business, of being your own boss of an intrinsically motivated business is that if you leave your employer just to start up whatever you want to try, you are risking a lot because there is no universal coverage. There is no, there's a very small floor in the economy that we have the capacity to raise. We have the resources, we have the technology, but we have an economic ideology that strongly, strongly fights against it, right? We have this idea of workfare. We have the idea that all benefits are contingent upon employment. So if you're not employed, you miss out on a huge swath of benefits. Um, so it is really interesting, even just from a very deeply American angle to talk about raising the economic floor and decreasing the amount of anxiety people are plunged into. If something goes wrong, you're going to increase innovation. You're going to increase entrepreneurship. You're going to increase people's agency. 
Um, and I think that's one of the most effective ways to go about it is to couch this whole thing in the kind of American rhetoric of, yeah. of innovation, right? Yeah, that's that's what excites me. I And I think that's the interesting frame is how do you tie this to things people already are bought into? Mm-hmm. Um, I am self-employed. So I came back to the U.S. and I could not ha- get access to the healthcare exchange for three weeks because it starts at the first of the month. So I had to right. do... And I had a health issue, so I had to do a number of things uninsured. It is crazy to navigate. I spent uh, a couple hours on the phone yesterday negotiating mm. um, fees I had to pay. Turns out everything's negotiable because all the whole system's a The crazy. prices are totally arbitrary. Yeah, but It's an enormous amount of stress. And people see that and they're like, yeah, I, I don't want to go down that path. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. I think um, around the ideas that Americans are excited by, there's this survey I highlighted in one of my newsletters, a survey of American freshmen. And they show what do you value most in life? The 1950s and 60s, number one was like how to live a meaningful life. That was like what people were, were most worried about. And then two is like having a family. Three is like getting good at what you do. Um, and then in the 1970s, you've written a lot about this. What jumped from out of nowhere was being wealthy. Right. Um, and living a meaningful life basically fell in proportion to the money gain. Um, yeah. And that's a mystery in itself. Um, and money has become central. Um, I think because of a lot of our systems have become complicated and expensive. But what interests me is number two and three have still stayed the same, having mm. a family and um, being good at what you do, right? So yeah. how do we reframe these debates around like, how do we unleash young people, right? right. How do we enable people to have families, right? It's it's actually scary for me to be self-employed and bring a child into, yeah. into life because you don't know what the healthcare um scenarios could be like i feel like i'm a better person and contributing and able to help people and um, being creative but um the system is telling me go get a job paul you're a freaking idiot for trying to bring a potential child into this world um and we need to reclaim that right like how do we enable people to have families and thrive um and do creative things do the things that push our culture forward um, without economic precarity. Um, yeah. And you've written about that with your time inequality. You've written about that with UBI. Um, do you want to say more about um, some of the other, like you've written a lot about what are the different kind of like policy options. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we tie these policy options to things that people are already bought into, like raising a family or right. entrepreneurism? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a million dollar question. Um, one maybe one kind of piece of groundwork to throw in you mentioned it just a little bit ago is we you know we look a lot at for take healthcare for example we look a lot at efficiency and at at choice but the idea of mental health or anxiety doesn't factor in at all and if you if you ask yourself what the change of um, kind of anxiety levels will come from moving from the kind of system we have now to universal healthcare um, <laughs> there's a lot of substance there that that gets passed over. Um, and you can do that for a lot of different policies. If you look at, it's it's one of the touch points, I think, between economics and, and consciousness or subjectivity is if you ask yourself in what ways certain economic structures um, 
either contribute to or kind of help us move beyond certain dimensions of anxiety. Um, that's a dimension that I think has been left out for a long time and it's starting to come back in. Um, but I also think, especially kind of in the conversation, so one of the ways a lot of people refer to kind of economics from the 70s until today is, is neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism. And one of, one of the interesting angles in the kind of debate that's asking what comes next, right? What's, what's a kind of post-neoliberal framework is that you can actually make the argument now purely on economic grounds. So, for example, rather than having a moral critique of neoliberalism, saying it's unfair, saying whatever, um, which will very rarely convert anyone who isn't already predisposed no. to your idea, you can make the argument purely based on growth, on stability, on like traditional metrics that make capitalism work well on innovation. Um, you can show we have the we have the empirical evidence that suggests um, all kinds of gains in efficiency for economic democracy, like co-determination. We have the evidence for entrepreneurship and and uh, healthcare. We have the evidence for growth and st- um, stimulating demand with basic income and also with entrepreneurship. Um, so with all these kinds of different ideas, you can couch them within these existing attitudes of economic growth is um, something that allows us to move beyond zero sum games or something that allows us to share in prosperity. If you, um, and you know, the question of green growth is, is obviously very vital and I don't think we have to abandon growth altogether. Uh, the question of stability, which has always been important in the economic literature, which factors in inequality, all of these things. Um, I think that's very possible. And, and I think it's, it's not being made as much as it should that argument. Um, that even on the kind of traditional criteria, these alternatives might outperform um, the status quo. But I think that's really interesting. And, and also, I think you see that happening in people like Russ Roberts, um, people like Cowan, right, who's trying to factor in leisure time. That's a pretty radical thing when you ask, right. how do you actually do that? Because you can't just um, decide that, oh, we're going to value leisure. Because as we've seen over the past 50 years, um, it doesn't happen naturally. You have to have a mechanism that converts that kind of valuation into the real capacity for ordinary people to do that. And that requires policy. Um, so I think you're right that, that that's the question, right? How do we appeal to existing attitudes um, to show these different possibilities? And the optimistic thing, I think, is that um, we have a lot of ways of doing so, that, that we have the literature, we have the ideas, we have the bridges between them. Um, so we just have to kind of elaborate them. Yeah, I'm probably a little more skeptical than you that numbers get us there. Uh, I just think like numbers, literature, research studies are not going to get us there. I think it's the qualitative stories you hear from yeah. places like Phil- Finland. I think um, I worked in strategy consulting. I know how to manipulate any data to give me what I want to see. And <laughs> I think enough like smart people, there's enough information out there now. You can kind of find the data to fit whatever you want. There's a pretty strong anti-UBI um, argument. Um, though it might start from a different foundation and there's a really strong like pro UBI um, yeah. argument. I think what's fascinating for me are stories that are attached to truth, right? Um, the danger is when you're getting stories attached to non-truth. Um, right. But um, yeah, I think uh, Jordan Hall put this video out uh, about the possibilities of UBI and the story goes, okay, Um, right now, Goldman Sachs hires a janitor for $20,000 a year. Suddenly you give that person a thousand dollars a month. And that person says, screw you, Goldman Sachs. I don't want to clean your toilets. Mm -hmm. And 
they can't hire anyone, right? So then the price goes up, supply and demand, and Goldman Sachs now needs to hire a janitor for $75,000 a year because who the hell wants to clean toilets if you don't have to? Right. Um, then downstream, entrepreneurs go, oh, how can we design toilets to self-clean themselves? Let's develop a new technology or a new way of thinking about this, right? So then you have all this downstream creativity creativity opened up right mm -hmm. and then i mean the biggest problem then is what do you do with the wealth that's unlocked and but that can help fund ubi and that's kind of like an unknown upside that we we don't really know about we've seen ubi experiments but we've never seen it as a whole society right right, right. because if only some people are getting ubi in finland there's still somebody else you can hire to clean your toilets right yeah yeah, it's it's there's a really interesting paper written by um Philippe Van Paris, who's kind of one of the biggest academics in the basic income world. And he wrote it back, I think it was in 89, and it's called The Capitalist Road to Communism. And it's basically describes the logic you just described that if you have a sufficient UBI, there's a really interesting kind of inversion in, in wage behavior, where, like you said, people who are doing work that has a lot of drudgery, like work that we just don't want to do, um, they gain a lot of bargaining power. And the more bargaining power you gain, the better uh, wage contracts you're going to receive. And so you see this weird inversion where really um, undesirable work, the wages go up. And then work that you want to do anyway, the wages go down. And so you have a flip in the usual inversion. And then you have employers are incentivized to automate a lot of work because they don't want to pay $75,000 to an employee. And so you see an incentive to actually push uh, full automation. Um, one of the important questions there, though, is, is given the current power structure and the current way that, that wealth operates, um, there's, there's no reason that the wealth that would be generated off of the automation is something that would be broadly shared. So we have to talk about um, how do we all share in the wealth that is created and this kind of stuff, and that's really important. Um, but yeah, it is interesting to think about the, the changes in incentives, the more bargaining power um, kind of people at the lower end of the economic ladder get. How is that going to change um, all those kinds of wages? And, and the janitor story is, is a really good one. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's almost not, there is a broader acceptance, I notice, especially I think talking to previous generations um, recently, there's almost like categorical confusion or like WTF. Why does Jeff Bezos have $200 billion? Mm. Um, like, I think you or I have dug into how did that happen? Uh, it's a combination of zero marginal cost. Then you have these superstar firms that are in the top 1% out earning like crazy. Um, and then automated uh, algorithms like Google, Facebook, and Amazon basically run on automation um, and can create um, unbelievable wealth. Like the market cap of them today is like six or seven times what the largest companies were 10 years ago. Right. That's unbelievable. Um, so people have a sense like, okay, Jeff Bezos has more money, but they haven't yet made the connection that like there are these super wealth creation engines um, that this society has. They have tens of billions of dollars on their, on their balance sheet because they don't know what to do with it. How do we uh, redistribute that wealth? Um, yeah. And I think we'll get there. Right now, what I see is basically we have the dumbest possible ideas. <laughs> We're at like 
0.1 version, right? The economy um, wasn't designed for this, you know? We're no, it's, territory. it's, it's kind of uh, unbelievable that we've achieved this, too. We had this paper, I think, in the 1950s, the Triple Revolution. They were, like, afraid this was going to happen. And one of the biggest concerns was, what are people going to do with their free time once mm. everything's automated? It didn't mm. happen then, but it's happening now. Like, Google sells ads on Algorithm, and then it has a whole bunch of employees, from what I can tell, some of my friends working there, they're just kind of like working out random stuff and hoping they can come up with another business idea with all the excess cash. Um, yeah. Why why doesn't Google just have their own UBI to kind of support the communities around them? Um, and yeah. maybe that will be a possibility. But I mean, our political parties are led by 70-year-olds who basically have no imagination for what could be. Um yeah. Have you seen anything globally, like interesting political stuff or ideas? Like to me, it just seems like dumb and dumber. <laughs> I think that's a fair way to put it. Um, it's like either people should be able to get unbelievably rich or we should uh, double down on very complicated, expensive systems and give them to right. more people. It's like, uh, what do we, come on. Yeah. Well, I think too, one of the important notes, like one, one of the reasons that wealth inequality has ballooned so much um, I have no problem with saying, for example, let's say, uh, you know, Sarah starts a company and um, some innovative tech startup and she winds up selling it to Facebook for a billion dollars. I have no problem saying that Sarah has rightfully earned that billion dollars. That makes sense. They valued your company. Great. But the thing about wealth is like, that's not what makes Sarah super wealthy. Now that she has a billion dollars, like the best way to get wealthy is to already have it. So once right. you have a billion dollars, you can invest that and you're sitting on eight, 10, nine, 10% returns. And then that's when that starts cascading. And that's where the question of what are you earning privately versus what's kind of a, a collective, you know, what's the, the, the collective nature of value production. It's in those kind of second order effects for once you've gotten wealth, the way the economy is set up, the way capital gains are dealt with, so on and so forth it's very easy to just have that number then just grow, 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 grow. Um, and the question is, you know, is that A, is that just? And B, is that doing the economy any good? Or would that do better with a kind of cyclical system that cycles that back out to everyone to stimulate demand all over? Um, so yeah, when you, when you look at the, the way that operates now, it doesn't seem to make much sense. And globally, I mean, I, in terms of policy, I focus a lot more on the US. I see the US as for better or worse, a kind of laboratory where we're pretty far along in some kind of process. Um, and whatever we do here can, it's, it's like an experimental place, right? I mean, there are certainly places that are um, going interesting directions. I know Taiwan is, is doing some really interesting things that you probably know way more about me, especially in terms of state capacity. Um, but I, I'm really interested in how the U.S. is going to deal with it because the U.S. is could be really screwed or we could be like really phenomenal. Like, I, I don't think we're, you know, we're not written off, nothing like that. Um, but it would require a big shift in thinking and 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 how we approach wealth and value creation and, and not only the distribution of wealth, but the pre-distribution, right? So it, it's on one level, you can look at, um, okay, wealth is accruing up here and we need to tax it and give it back down here and fine. But it's even more interesting to talk about how do we get um, wealth to be created in a more egalitarian fashion in the first place and and not in line with this idea of like the equality of outcomes that's not a very interesting position to me but if, if you have meaningful equality of opportunity i think that you can actually you would expect a bit of a more uh, less lopsided distribution and if you look at our distribution now it does not suggest that we have equality of opportunity 
And so I, th I think that that's also a place where you can generate some pretty broad coalitions, not again, not just on the far left, but more center, even more to the right. Equality of opportunity is, is a pretty wide banner that a lot of right. people come together on. We just don't agree on, on what does it mean to have a call? Like, what does it take to have that? Yeah. And I, a lot of people don't seem to see the connection be in how they actually build their wealth. And I, this is why I keep coming back to work beliefs. I see like boomers, for example, I see some people, um, that have created a lot of wealth for themselves, but they're not fully making the connection that that's from a return on capital and not a return on their labor. But at the same time, I also have compassion because the work system many of these people came up in forced them to alienate um, from society, to not be their full selves at work. And I've almost thought there needs to be kind of like we need some sort of ritual um, to help people transcend to kind of this new phase and mm -hmm. not just look at, OK, I have a lot of money because I suffered and put my um, put so much effort into it. That is true. And it's like, yes, and rather yeah. than either or, yeah. um, but it's, uh, it's so hard to figure out how to do that. And I think that's a cultural problem. That's not a policy problem. Right. Um, and yeah, well, ritual, rituals, the, I love that phrasing of it because ritual is so interesting in, in its role with kind of our cultural attitude, especially about work. Like if you look at, um, rites of passage rituals throughout other cultures. You look at Aboriginal culture, Eskimo culture, um, Native Americans. They all have essentially variations on the same theme of there's a point where you transition from immaturity to maturity. And what they, so the Eskimos, for example, the ritual everyone goes through is you sit in a freezing igloo for 30 days with barely any food, barely any water, no contact, and you do absolutely nothing. And you come like that close to death. Or in Aboriginal culture, there's a walkabout where you go out into the desert for like three months. And in all these situations, you're kind of put into raw, direct contact with your own experience of, of the universe and in, in their cosmology. And that has a that kind of pulls you out of your cultural echo chamber. It pulls you out of the, the cultural attitudes you've absorbed. And it gives you this kind of firsthand relationship with whatever the heck you feel is going on. And it gives you an experience that I think is really valuable. And we don't have rituals like that. Like I mentioned, like when I went from or accidentally didn't have a job. And so I went from college to not knowing what, like that was an incredibly diluted form of kind of like experiencing something that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, Richard Tarnas actually is a professor, I think at the California Institute of Integral Studies, but he wrote a, a phenomenal paper on this. And his whole point, like in, in the US, he's like, since we've abandoned these rites of passage rituals, since we don't have ways of kind of generating these firsthand direct relationship with what's going on, it's kind of sunk into the background and occurring at an unconscious level. So he sees a lot of the crises we're going through as kind of the boiling over of this neglect that we've had and the rituals occurring on a collective scale, which is a fun metaphor. But all to say, I think you're absolutely right that it goes well beyond policy. We need to talk about how do we relate to one another? What are the, the social rituals that we have? Even rituals that like everyday rituals. You know, we have sporting events. Obviously, there's a fascinating kind of religious dimension to that. So if you look at what are the rituals we have, very few are connected to kind of pulling us out of absorbed ways of being. Um, so that would be a really interesting lever. Yeah. And I, I have so much compassion, um, for people I talk to, I have 
these curiosity conversations where people can just book them with me every week. And I've been talking to probably three to five people a week, especially picked up since the pandemic. But I talk to people of all ages and I, I think people get angry about wealth inequality, but don't see that um, people that have been through this economic and labor system are a bit exhausted and frustrated. And when people are say, you have too much money, you should give it back. Like they're rightly, their expected response is going to be resentment and anger. Right. right? Um, but what I see when I kind of open up and have deeper conversations is there's a lot of wisdom there or a lot of hunger for more life. And, um, I think there's profound possibilities and like thinking about our elders in different ways and trying to pass her, pass along different types of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah. Um, but we'll see, we'll see. I, I just that don't know. It's, um, I think it's an exciting time, but I think, um, a lot of things right now are really about, um, experiments and imagination and possibility. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure we have a lot of that, but uh, I think we could see a lot of interesting things come out of this uh, pandemic. Yeah. Well, just to push back on that a little bit, I think that yeah, a lot of your, your work, your work has, like you said, you're highlighting the stories where this is happening. You know, things are happening and the Internet's definitely facilitated our kind of exposure to a lot of different things that are going on. But that's one of the things that I always treasure about following everything that you're writing about and, and putting out there is that. Not, you know, I'm lost in like a, a policy world, which is kind of view from up here, but it's happening on the ground at, at an individual level. And we need to bring these both together, right? And understanding that in my own life, I have more space to act than I realize, likely. But also, you know, I shouldn't individualize that and take any guilt from my failure to do so. I should understand the way that the surrounding systems are kind of interacting with me to create that outcome. Um, but I, I think that the more we bring these together, we bring together the real stories of things that are happening and an understanding of, of what is possible, what we have the means, the resources, the ingenuity to do. Um, I think these can spiral together. And I think you're right. I think uh, things are things are changing all around us. Right. It's a very volatile time and it's dangerous and it's also exciting. Yeah, I think one of the essays you sent me, I think you sent me or you linked it in your newsletter was Capitalism Redefined. I've read it a couple times. It's a great uh, essay, but it might be a good uh, point to close and we can leave the audience with some optimism. But uh, the quote is, great debates rage about whether to raise or lower interest rates or increase or decrease regulation. And our political system has been paralyzed by a bitter ideological struggle over the budget. But there's too little debate about what it is all for. Hardly anyone ever asks, what kind of growth do we want? What does wealth mean? And what will it do for our lives? I love that. And I, 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 it pains me to see this in our current um, debates. It's like we have in the U.S., we have one party that's like, we need to pay people more. And this party's like, we need to pay people less. And I'm just screaming like, what is it all for? Like, can't we have a discussion? Has anyone read philosophy? Like... Um, and these are not, these people are not wired to have that conversation, but, um, I'm just glad people like you are and, uh, trying to push us to dream bigger and think about what, what do we really want? What is wealth? Yeah. And, and you too, man. 
And it's funny, actually, the last kind of thing in terms of what wealth is like, again, this is what's been so wonderful about like going back to the history, like in the ancient Greek uh, civilization, the way they defined wealth was almost verbatim. This is from Hannah Arendt again. Um, wealth was the capacity to exclude labor from humankind's life, which, um, again, is not something I'm saying we need to adopt, but they had a very specific understanding that the wealth had a point. And the point of wealth was directly related to liberating, at that time, white men to participate in the public realm, to participate in creating the world that feeds back to shape us, right? And now we've kind of, I think, drifted away from, like you say, uh, the conversations about what is wealth and what can it allow us to do. Um, So I hope it comes back. Fantastic. So we'll close there. We could probably talk for another couple of hours. Um, (laughs) Yeah. We actually didn't even dive that deep into something you've written pretty extensively about UBI. Um, But I think the more important conversation is the deeper stuff, the foundational stuff. And UBI, I think it could be seven other things. I don't think you really care what the solution is. It's it's more about transcending and unlocking and dreaming. Um, What are you... Uh, energized about what um, what's exciting you and where are you headed and perhaps let us know where people can find you yeah Um, I'm I'm energized about the wide array of different conversations that are happening I think a lot of the conversations that we've mentioned um, have been happening for 5, 10, 15 years now but especially over the past 6 months um, you see a lot of energetic debate about, um, and even in the mainstream, about what is economics for, what is wealth. I mean, economists like Mariana Mazzucato, who's firmly planted in in the language of the existing tradition, is like changing it from within. Um, So as someone who spends a lot of time reading economic policy and really interested in that world, I think it's a really exciting time that I think this kind of hold the capitalist realism learned hopelessness um, phenomena is absolutely being punctured. And I think that there are really systematic ways of thinking about transcending that that are that are on the mainstream table that are up for debate and i think that we're seeing our imaginations being opened by this kind of cascade of crises not only the pandemic not only you know um, the environment not only racial inequality and brutality all of these things are cascading and it's, and it's spiraling together with these real kind of rigorous um theoretical understandings in, in the academic disciplines that so often drive policy. And, you know, that's, I think you're right. Like we need to get to this bottom level of, of the ideas and how we relate to the ideas of work. But also I want to see that kind of cashed in in policy. Like I want to see it put in practice. And I think that's happening. Um, if I, yeah, if anyone wants to, I, I have a, I publish most of my essays and my podcast on, on my website. That's musingmind.org. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. If you're on there, definitely reach out. I also have a, a contact thing on my website. Just like you, you know, the reason that I'm I'm doing a lot of this public facing stuff is to find the others, right? To to create community yeah. around these questions. Um, and it's been a wonderful journey so far. I mean, like you, right? We met exactly through this kind of stuff, and it's been great. And I've learned so much. Um, so please, you know, if anyone's interested, reach out and let's see what we can cook up. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate the time today, Oshan. Looking forward to uh, continuing the uh, conversation. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Reimagined Work Podcast. It's been such a fun journey to start this podcast, start getting random feedback from around the world, and to continue to meet and have conversations with such amazing people who really helped me learn and in some ways have started to become my friends. I think a podcast, I've started to push a lot of people to to create podcasts 
can be this hack almost to uh, jump through the hoops of the awkwardness of networking that people don't like and actually get down to have a deeper conversation and I found it's been pretty cool to do that. Um, I want to keep this as basically a fun creative endeavor. I don't want to have ads. I think there are a lot of ads out there that you can basically just give a coupon code. You get pretty small dollars on the advertising. I've looked into it. Um, I think it's kind of annoying when you're listening to things, though. I think podcast advertising is probably the least bad of any uh, advertising I've seen. Anyway, if you feel compelled to support the podcast, I have a Patreon page. Right now, that is probably the main way to support. So I think for me, asking for contribution or support is really a selfish motive. I'd like to dedicate more of my time to creating, writing, helping people, having these conversations, and just spending a lot more time thinking deeply, reading books, uh, writing about these topics. And if you think that's something worth doing, uh, I'd love to see the show of support. If you have feedback on the podcast, guests you want me to talk to, want to make comments on my monotone voice, you can send them my way. I take any and all comments and just love the support. Uh, Thanks so much for the people listening and let's keep reimagining work. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.